0: Crossroads. I'm Mistress Prime.
1: I'm Tyler Matthews and today we're joined with Laura Perlin. Welcome Laura. Hi.
0: Hello. Hi.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here.
1: Oh, thank you for uh, taking the time to join us on online since we are having to stay indoors. Uh, shelter in place is still in effect for us. Yeah
3: so, I
2: know
0: we had talked about doing this in person but that's... and right about now too which mm-hmm. kind of worked out. Yeah. Um, so how are you, how are you faring under the circumstances? Mm, I would say I'm generally doing really well with it.
2: I have a good home life and I have my work that keeps me really engaged and super busy. So I did have a family member ill um, with the mm. coronavirus and that was difficult, but they've gotten better. So, Oh, great. Um, you know, i you glad they've gotten better. Thank you. Yeah. So I feel like, given the range of people's sufferings from this i'm doing pretty well
1: oh yeah. i'm glad to hear that now Thank you're you. up in
2: the bay area correct i am i'm in yalamu ohlone land san francisco
3: okay yeah yeah oh,
0: okay. yeah i hope you two are doing well with it as well yeah we're um, down in socal so far except for the heat we're doing okay yeah last it.
1: couple of days all of a sudden it went to from Average is 60, 70 a day to almost 100. I think today is actually going to be 100.
0: No, wow. yesterday Yesterday was almost 100. It might be for you, though, because you're further inland than me. Mm-hmm. But today it was supposed to be like 90. But yesterday was like almost 100.
1: Yeah, it was oh, really, wow. really warm.
0: Wow. I think it's in the 60s here in San Francisco. I'm jealous. So how have you been since uh, Pantheon? You know, that feels like it was so long
2: ago. I understand that it was Mm -hmm. only, what, two months?
1: Two months, but it feels...
2: It's been a busy two months, because it was a busy month or so before the shelter in place. And then shelter in place, it's sort of like its own
0: timeless world. Yeah. March was the longest year ever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but I would say generally things have been really good. Yeah, I tend to be pretty buoyant. So I'm definitely
2: like glass half full type of person. So that's a good way
1: to address things, considering everything that is going on. Uh, So there were a few things that I got to read a little bit about you through your website, uh, since I'm the less informed of the two of us.
0: Well, so let me explain how we met. So we actually met at PantheaCon. Uh, at the pagans of color caucus okay and uh which was a, a this year was good but it was very unique i mean i think because alone was a little different mm-hmm. but i've i've not yet experienced having to kick people out <laughs> which was a very interesting experience in itself um and I had not previously personally experienced um, overt, rude, racist behavior from uh, pecan people walking by the room before. And that was, a, that was an experience um, because some people were very butthurt about not being allowed to get into the uh, event, that particular room simply because they didn't identify as somebody of color. So there were Mm -hmm. a lot of comments exchanged from people. Um, Anyway, so the actual caucus itself was fantastic and I really enjoyed meeting everybody that was there. And uh, so this this was our opportunity to actually talk a little bit. And I had learned something very interesting about uh, Laura and uh, how she is very unique in the people that I have met thus far in the POC community because of some of her cultural heritage. So you wanna talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, well, it's funny because when we went around the room and introduced ourselves and talked about where our families were from, where our lineages were from, you said, I believe that you had found out through some DNA testing, that you had Saha ancestry.
0: Yeah, very, and very little, but yeah.
2: Sure. Yeah, but so, and so for people who might not know, um, Saha people um, are indigenous to Siberia, to the far northeast of Siberia. And often, as in the case with many indigenous groups, um, Saha people can be referred to by a different name. So you might come across the name Yakut, Y A K U T, but our name for our own people is Saha s-a-k-h-a so when um when we were going around and introducing ourselves Yvonne or Mistress Prime was like and I have a little bit of Yakut DNA and I was like Woo! Saha! <laughs> like I started celebrating that because I'm, I'm Saha, so we have that in common um and yeah this is a thing that happens actually from time to time for whatever reason Saha, um, ancestry shows up prominently in DNA tests there's a very strong marker that shows up so when people have um, and it could be erroneous also right because there's so much around DNA tests that's not actually accurate in some ways they're in their infancy but it happens pretty regularly that people are like oh my DNA test said that I'm part sacha what's that about who's that and then they start googling and if they're googling in english they find me so mm-hmm. um it's always kind of interesting connections that that occur from that yeah yeah so yeah i'm glad we got a chance to connect more because panthea is such a whirlwind it's like you know it's the the four days passes and like it
0: yeah oh it was um was not as um whirlwindish for me this time, but I think that's because it was just a in general a smaller, more low key event overall. But there was still quite a bit going on. And then we were we did our interviews night, I think Saturday night. So that just mm-hmm. that was a lot.
1: Saturday night until almost three AM
0: <laughs> Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, we set up camp in the um in the lobby. From
1: the front lobby, yeah. Yeah. Well.
0: Got it. Got it. Yeah, it was my first time going for all four days. So mm-hmm. that was new for me. Had you been in the caucus previously? Uh, yes. I had been in the caucus.
2: So let's see. It was my fourth time at Pantheon. I went once in, I want to say, 1999 when it was a very different sort of a gathering. It was mm-hmm. not held in that hotel. Right. It, Um, it was much, much, much smaller. And then I went for the last three years. So in 2018, I just went for the day. And then 2019, I went for two days. And I was in the POC caucus that year. Um, Okay. And then, yeah, this year, 2020 is the first time I I attended for all
0: all four days. Yeah, because I'm like, I thought you looked familiar. But I was like, was it because I'd seen you walking the halls or because you were actually in the caucus, so?
2: Yeah, I yeah, I was definitely around, you know, the last three years, so, although, you know, I know a lot of people have a deeper, longer history with the event than that, certainly.
0: Yeah, it was only his second year.
2: Yeah,
1: oh, was only... it. So...
0: it was only... So, 15th. Oh, okay, yes, yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, a little bit of a difference in uh, experiences.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: So I also, uh, going through your website, I uh, had noticed that you also have some Roman or Roma, excuse me, not Roman, Roma uh, heritage as well. That's interesting because we actually uh, interviewed a Romani wayfarer uh, mm. a while back. So it is interesting to see another person that has some of that ancestry as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, my ancestry is Ashkenazi and Mizrahi Jewish, so both Eastern European and Middle Eastern Jewish ancestry, and then Saha, a Siberian indigenous, and then also some Romani ancestry, uh, some Karelian ancestry. Karelian people are indigenous to the Far to Northern Europe on the okay. both sides of the border of Russia and Finland. Um, and then I have a, a little bit of Russian ancestry, um, a tiny little bit of Evank, another Siberian indigenous ancestry, as well. And, you know, like cultural group belonging be- depends on a lot of things, right? It's not just mm-hmm. what's in your DNA and what's in your blood. So right. Jewish and Saha are the two that I feel like I could really. Um, claim or inhabit more fully because Mm -hmm. those are the two cultures where I feel like I have cultural competence. I have community relationships. I have language competence. Right. So like while I totally give honor and respect to all of my ancestors and everyone who combined themselves together to allow me to live this life. um, I also want to be clear about where I have more contact or, uh, or cultural membership and belonging. Mm. Um, so I spend part of every year in Sahara Republic in Siberia um, okay. and you know I'm very my, my work centers my my Siberian ancestry and Siberian practices and so that's very alive in my life and then being Jewish is something that I also feel like connected to and then with these other ancestries I don't have as much uh, personal uh, connection so I wouldn't mm-hmm. want to like claim being like oh yeah I'm Romani publicly when I, I'm not you know I don't speak the Romani language I'm not actively mm-hmm. involved in the struggles of Romani people so I wouldn't want to like present myself as something that I'm not but at the same time like I do definitely honor those that heritage and those ancestors mm-hmm. and love them and accept their love and support in my life and have some connection with, okay. with that with that part of myself there's definitely some
3: connection
1: yeah okay yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and you define yourself as a boundary walker uh, at least that that's an interesting term I've yet to come across somebody who would identify or list themselves as that and uh, could you give a little bit of background for our uh, what you define as a boundary walker because it's an yeah. interesting
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's just like a word that I play with to talk about how I find myself between worlds often living both on a lonely land in the United States and in Saka Republic, working in the spirit worlds. Like that's my, my work is like ritual work divination. So working both in spirit and mundane worlds, um, you know, I have a lot of these experiences of being kind of both in and out in life growing up in an immigrant refugee family, like, sort of both American, but then also very uh, foreign and other in a way, right? Within, Mm -hmm. within US culture. um, I have a lot of like, right brain and left brain stuff going where I'm very, um, on the one hand, very like, creative and expressive and a ritualist professionally and then on the other hand i'm very organized and logical and whatever i do like group organizing i'm often doing the finances and so i have sort of that on both sides um you know i'm a light-skinned poc person who has white privilege in many contexts so that there's sort of like a boundary um there you know what i mean where Mm -hmm. like i can i can be read as, like, oh, yes, I'm an American person. And then I can also be read as, like, very, very other. Um, I also grew up multilingual and lived between different languages. And, um, you know, the way that, you know, in, in Sahara Republic and the villages, um, you know, things, life ways are quite similar to how they've been for, um, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so I've also had for many years, um, gosh, like, yeah, well over a decade, maybe 15 years, this practice of spending my summers in places that often are no electricity, no plumbing, like living very close to the land. But then I also am very much like a, a city person where I go to the, you know, I go to performances and get dressed up and, you know, I am like really embracing the cultural, um, the cultural life that's present in the city, but then I'll go and live somewhere with no plumbing and, you know, be chopping wood for months of the year. So I have sort of these, um, this, this mashup um, that I do. And yeah, mm. sometimes I talk about it as boundary walking because it functions on so many different levels.
1: Mm-hmm. And that was why I wanted to get at is you don't just walk between the mundane and the, Uh, spiritual you do it on such a larger scale between uh the different nationalities and different uh lost my train of thought there different practices that you uh work with and experience and that's that's very interesting to me it's very different from where i grew up and have experienced as a white guy you know it's Mm. that's that's, But you're white (laughs) any whiter and you could call me wonder bread
3: yeah
2: (laughs) yeah yeah i did grow up with some of my family practices i've been reading i've been reading with cards since i was seven or eight years old my mom taught me and i started with just playing cards um Mm -hmm. but i was gifted my first tarot deck for my 12th birthday so I've been using uh, Rider-Waite-Smith type tarot deck, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, you know, like 78 cards, roughly, Major Arcana, and then Four mm-hmm. four Suits, that sort of deck since I was 12. So that practice has been with me since I was a kid. And then there's a lot of, um, you know, because my mom grew up in Siberia, my dad grew up in Ukraine and Russia, um, and my parents um, came as, as you know, we came as, the family came as refugees to the U.S. around the time that I was born. So I also, Mm. you know, it's very different than coming as an adult, but it's also very different from being born into a family that's already established in the country Mm -hmm. of immigration. So that's another place of boundary walking, you know, like growing up in a home where no one was acculturated to American culture and you know, uh, people, you know, I didn't grow up speaking English. Right. Um, so that's another, another place of boundary walking. And so, yeah, I grew up, you know, talking to spirits, doing what within the pagan community you would call like magic or spirit work or nature mysticism. And, you know, I grew up with those sorts of of practices, although I didn't really have a larger context for them until I started going back to Siberia as an adult um yeah it was always sort of like how does this fit in because there's not a lot of visibility of what it means to be Siberian indigenous I grew up in the Bay Area which is a very diverse place um but um so I knew you know people of a lot of different ethnicities but North Asia in particular indigenous Siberia is like was just sort of a big blank Right. So I I knew um, that there was something different about my cultural background or cultural heritage, but it was hard to place because I was like, okay, well, the groups that I could identify were like, okay, I know I'm not black. I know I'm not Latinx because I don't speak Spanish at home. Right. Like, I know I'm not Native American because my family literally just moved here. Right. Um, And like, Asian, it's like I knew very diverse Asian people, but they were East Asian, South Asian, Southeast Asian, you know, West Asian, Middle Eastern. Um, and so my um, Asian ancestry is largely North Asian, but also Central Asian and a little bit South Asian. But it's like, where does that fit? You know what I mean? And it was like, okay, well, I guess I'm white. But there was also like something different about that and then there was Mm -hmm. also these whisperings it's kind of like if I say don't think of an elephant you've thought of an elephant right so Mm -hmm. like I kind of had my you know family members whispering in my ear being like in America we're white we're white here we're white here in America right and so there's something about that that's like oh is that true or not? You know, automatically there's something like uncomfortable, you know, I mean, passing as a survival strategy is an uncomfortable survival strategy. And Mm -hmm. there's still also like very much privilege of being a light skinned person who can be, you know, read as part of the, the, you know, the dominant group in terms of Mm -hmm. power. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I I grew up with, with all that and yeah. So um, would you say that growing up with that diverse background were, was your family pagan in practice or did you find that on your own just in general?
2: I would say, I mean, no one claimed the label pagan. Sure. Um, my mother taught me practices that you could call pagan or magical or ritual. Um, but there was a lot of, um, uh, my, my parents were really into assimilating into American culture as a way of um, surviving and also kind of dropping You know there's a lot of familial cultural ancestral trauma right like both uh you know Jewish people experienced a genocide um Saha people experienced a genocide when Saha republic was taken into the Russian empire in the 1600s and there was just like a lot of bad difficult stuff that had trickled down And so there was really a wall, right? Like, um, and so I want to be careful to talk about my own experience because I know that my family wouldn't necessarily be comfortable talking about their experience, right? Mm -hmm. They like kind of have like a, nope, we don't talk (coughs) about it. We're, we're, they're into being Americans in America. So, um, so in, in a way there was a lot that was passed down, but then there was also a lot of secrecy. You know, there was even kind of like joking secrecy, where I would ask questions about like, where did you come from? What was your life like? And my mother would be like, I am from Paris, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and it was this joke, but it's also like a way to shut down the conversation. Right. Um, So, yeah, yeah. And, you know, there are um, pieces of story that have come down to me. So there's both. Um, a lot of cultural inheritance that I gained and I think relative to some American cultural experiences where people feel like they don't have family culture it's like my family was all culture you know what I mean we had the (laughs) languages we had the foods we had the cultural practices but at the same time there was a displacement and a removal that is part of both the migratory
0: experience and you know um and historical trauma yeah um so over time, I'm sure your your pagan path has kind of developed and gelled a little bit more. And um, now, you said you do ritual professionally. Mm-hmm. Care to talk to us about that? What does that mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so
2: I read tarot, which is something I imagine much of your audience is familiar with, um, And I have sort of my own style there because I wasn't taught, I mean, I was taught by my mother and then taught by the spirits. So it opened up for me over decades in a way that was not linked to anyone else's practice in terms of anyone else who was living. It's only about, you know, five years ago, um, you know, as I started to come out, of the broom closet so to speak and read tarot professionally i started to tap into like well what are other people doing and i started to you know take workshops and read books that other people have written on tarot which is fabulous i love it there's it's i mean i plan to spend my whole life learning about tarot and i love how many different interpretations and approaches there are um and i also notice that there are parts of my practice that are super divergent from what I might see in other parts of the tarot community. So I have that tarot practice, that divination practice um, that is really, I mean, oftentimes I see it as it's about clarifying one's path. It's about navigating crosswords, at crossroads. And it's about seeing what's, uh, what's available, right? Like given the factors present in your life today, what is available for you to move into that is the most uplifting, the most serviceful, the most joyous, the most loving, the most supportive of um, wellness amongst the human people, including your own self. So that's, that's one practice that I engage. I also do a lot of ancestral practice with clients and, you know, I don't do anything with clients. I don't do myself. Right. Um, But Yeah, I do a lot of ancestral reclamation, ancestral ritual practice with clients, um, which is really about, so we all have these ancestors. Like every one of us who is alive here today has people who mix their DNA to make them. And then those parents have parents and those parents have parents and those parents have parents. And it goes way back. And we are carrying the essence of our ancestors whether we like it or not whether we claim it or not whether we're conscious of it or not and regardless of how a person relates to it spiritually or energetically it's still um true on the DNA level right obviously right. and um you know things get passed down i mean the field of epigenetics is all about which DNA markers get activated and when they get activated, they get passed down activated, right? So like your, one's experiences in life do actually affect what gets passed down. And so a lot of my work is helping people connect with the wellness on their lineage. Even if every single person you know in your blood family is um, toxic and awful and even if every single story you have is suggests that your ancestors are abusive right um how about a hundred generations back you know how about 200 generations back no matter where your people were from at some point there were indigenous people there right even if your people are from the british isles or france right like there were indigenous people there at some point. And I don't wanna say that indigenous people have no problems cause that's super like, you know, whitewashy also, right? But yeah. but what indigenous people do do is live in harmony with all the forces of nature because you have to, right? <laughs> like, yeah. so, um, you know, it's, it's and, there's wellness in, in the lineage often not in indigenous times. So I help people connect to the wellness, to learn from that, to be resourced from that, to collaborate with guides and well ones to bring, to bring healing to any on the lineage who are not well, including the dead. Um, and also, to, it's not all like cleaning up Troubles. It's also allowing um, ancestral gifts and blessings to come forward more fully, more completely, because, um, you know, it's like we're part of this larger body. Your living being is like the tip of this iceberg, but then there's all these other people who made you, and you're part of that collective. So, yeah, that's another piece of the work that I do. And then um, there's another more esoteric ritual piece that's harder even to talk about because I don't have as much English language for it, but there's, um, there are ritual healing forms that I've been initiated into by the spirits and by my mentors in um, Sahara Republic that have to do with um, healing fragmentations, resolving like curses or blockages, um, you know, res- working with, um, problems that a person has that might be on the that are on the energetic or spirit level that are perhaps intrusions or disruptions on that on that level and so there's that um, I could call it healing or clearing work that's happening ritually as well and then you know some of my work is also counseling I've trained as an herbalist as a you know, massage therapist, body worker, yoga teacher, as an Ayurvedic practitioner. And so it's not like I throw away any of those trainings. Um, I use them. And there are people that I work with more like conversationally, relationally uh, as well. Um, And yeah, there's also energy work, body-based energy work that I do, not with the shelter in place. But when I am able to touch people, you know, the body tells the whole story. So by laying mm-hmm. one's hands on the body or near the body, it's, there's a lot of mapping energy field manipulation and healing work that can be done through that.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So that's where my ritual work is these days professionally.
0: And how are, how is, well, obviously we've got the, well, you cause where you're at it's shelter in place, right? As opposed to where we are, which is stay at home.
2: Uh, we're allowed to walk dogs and we're all which I have I live with a dog I'm blessed to live with a dog um and um, we're allowed to get groceries and we're allowed to walk around but we're not supposed to travel more than like a mile or something from home to you know so yeah basically I have gone to the grocery store once and then I walk my dog many times a day, and that's all that I've been out of the house for, this is, I think, my seventh week now. So, um, yeah, that's my life. I got a little cabin fever, but um, what's you going to do, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been working a lot online. People have been reaching out to me. You know, I really feel like working with someone Sometimes it's like a laundry list of oh, I want people who do this modality and that modality and this modality. But more often it's the vibe of the person, right? Mm-hmm. Where like sometimes it's like I want to work with you. I resonate with you. I feel like you have integrity. I feel like I trust you. I feel like you can get me or connect with me. So it's um, people have been reaching out to me, which is great. Um, I feel very blessed and honored to be a person who can support people in this time. And I mean, part of um, the, the ask from the spirits, you know, it's interesting around money and compensation, because I know some indigenous peoples have have taboos or practices where they can't receive money for their work. Um, in Saha culture, we take money. And in fact, it has to be good money, right? Like, if the spirits are not well fed, they there's an imbalance there that isn't actually going to serve the person who's receiving the services. Mm-hmm. Um, but what that means varies from everyone. So I have a very clear directive that I can't turn anyone away for lack of funds. Right. Mm-hmm. I can turn someone away for not wanting to pay me. Right. It's sure. like, if you're like, Oh, I don't want to pay you your full rate because I would rather spend that money on X, Y, Z, then, you know, that's their prerogative, but I'm not giving them a discount, right? Mm -hmm. But people, I mean, especially, you know, my practice becomes more and more global. So sometimes I get, um, you know, I have, I work with clients who live in places that are not uh, privileged within the economics of global capitalism, you know what I mean? And so I'll be like, what is good money for you? You know what I mean? Like if it's $10 a session, if it's $11 a session, like that's fine. You know what I Mm mean? Um, so I really try to make it clear that economics should not be, uh, you know, something that keeps people from from reaching towards me. Um, and people have been reaching towards me because a lot of people are suffering in this sheltered mm-hmm. place or they're using this time to be like, well, this is a time that I can do my self-development work.
3: So,
1: right. Yeah. Or they're being yeah. forced to deal with themselves in the first time ever.
2: Yeah, or
1: that. Yeah. So, that's been one thing I've been seeing.
0: Well, and we are actually going into a a Pluto retrograde. And that's forcing a lot of people to deal with a lot of stuff they don't want to deal with.
1: Yeah. A a lot of people are getting introduced to their shadow for the first time and they're not liking what they're seeing.
2: Well, subconscious. Mm -hmm. She's no joke.
0: Yeah.
1: She's
2: no joke. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, Yeah. What is one of the, so you said people are starting to come more to you online, which is. Yeah. I mean, I have an office as well in San Francisco, but I haven't been there, you know, since, you know, I'm not allowed, you know, the office is closed. Um, So what is one of the, what's something that you have learned during this time? Is there anything that has been unexpected, um, an unexpected positive about this experience? An unexpected positive. Because, I mean, the the whole thing about um, how now we we have to stay at home and we can't actually go and physically interact with people. But So we've had to work around things and and approach uh, doing things that we would normally do in our day-to-day maybe differently or find a completely different new route uh, for how we're going to either work on something or interact with people or something of that nature have you had an experience like that
2: yeah i mean the unexpected positives for me are that first of all it's been easier than i thought it would be i would imagine i would have imagined that my cabin fever would have been so much worse than it is um it's also given me a lot of time to work on things in my home okay uh, specifically book projects and creative projects it's like i'm here so i can mm-hmm. work on that um and so the number of things that are pulling my attention is fewer mm-hmm. um than when i was doing things out in the world besides dog walking um right. so yeah it's been good for my creative practice and for my for my book project so yeah, that's been really Talk great. Talk
0: to us about
2: your book. Uh, cool. I'm really, really excited about my book. Um, well, first of all, um, there are a couple of book projects. So there's one book that just came out, which is um, a book called um, also called The Moon Girl, and also called Lunaya Diushka, and it is a trilingual English-Russian Sa'ha book of traditional Sa'ha stories. Wow. Yeah, it's really cool, um, and I was asked to to you know support with the English translation for that book. So those stories are ancient, you know. I did not write those stories; I just translated them into English. Full full disclosure, um, but um, that I was approached by Bichik, which is a Sa'ha language publisher. So I'll mention that. So Sa'ha Republics, as most of you probably don't know, is in the far northeast of Siberia. It's about eight times the size of California, but with a population of just under one million people. There is That's one a... yeah, tiny population,
0: enormous place. Enormous, mm-hmm. right? But uh, it also it, houses the world's coldest regularly inhabited city, right?
2: Yes, Oymyakon. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> That's right. So, I mean, city, let's call it a village i think is is a bit more uh there's one city in sahara republic it's the city of Yakutsk, and it's in the middle approximately and then besides that it's little villages and towns um and uh there's like as i mentioned there's no uh uh the road structure if you were even to call it that is very rudimentary um and uh so a lot of the old ways are preserved and so um you know, people speak Saha. Saha is a dominant language there, you know, and radio, television, newspapers will be in Saha. People also speak Russian. Um, you know, in the city, people will speak Russian more than Saha, but then in the villages, people speak Saha more than they speak Russian. Okay. Um, and there are also some other indigenous people who live in Saha Republic, um, and then in the people, uh, you could people as well. So they have their own languages as well. Um, so I was saying this because the publisher, uh, Bichik, is a Saha language publisher, where um, there are multiple publishers, actually, who publish only in Saha. Um, and so um, Sahar, uh, so Bichik has been branching out and publishing in Russian, and now they're starting to publish in English, so they asked me to be a part of this book. So that book just came out um, you can get it at uh bichik.ru b-i-c-h-i-k dot and it should be on the home page as a new release called the moon girl is there a link Um, to it on your website um there is not but i will add one by the time this thing airs
3: Uh um
2: (laughs) i have what update my website on on my list of things to do um, and then I have this other book. I'll just show it. I'll show it to y'all even though this isn't visual. That's
0: so, beautiful.
2: Yeah. So this book I'm super excited about. So this is a book on saha shamanism that I am translating into English. Whoa. It will be one of the only materials on saha shamanism available in English, period. And... It will be one of few books on shamanism that's actually written by and translated by a person of the culture that's being written about.
0: That's awesome.
2: Yeah. Because so much of, it's like, I'm so excited about this book, but this is like a, you know, it's a long book. It's like 150 pages and look, it has words in it. It has plenty of words in it. So um, so it, it's taking a while to translate it, but I have time to work on it. And it's a project that I love and adore. The author of the book is Rosalia Bravina. So Bravina is the name of the woman who wrote the book. She's a Saha elder. Um, and, you know, uh, the word shaman comes from the Ivank language. Ivank people are an indigenous people of Siberia, and they are a people who are, um, Uh, I just forgot the word in English what nomadic nomadic is Mm. the word so traditionally they move around so it was their word that got diffused throughout like the whole like hundred plus um, indigenous nations of Siberia because Ivank people move around there are Mm -hmm. a lot of different words that are used it's, there's not just the word shaman. Like every culture, every people have their own words, and there are a lot of distinctions of different types of practices that have their own words, right? Um, but the word shaman is an a bank word. And then um, basically, when the um, Russian Empire expanded into Siberia, um, there were some travelers, priests, merchants who would do like travelogs and writings which were, of course, you know, outsiders looking in. And through those is how the word shaman got outside of Siberia. And then it was adopted as sort of an anthropological technical term in like the 1800s. And then in many ways, it's been co-opted into a Western thing where like, first of all, let me clarify that the spirits can call someone from any background. So like, if you are listening Mm -hmm. to this and you're a white person, like I am not hating on you or telling you that the spirits Mm -hmm. did not call you. Like that can absolutely happen. Um, But there's a way in which the word shaman has become associated with like neo-shamanism, with sort Mm -hmm. of these Western, largely white, not rooted in any particular culture or any particular place like um practices that involve things like spirit animals and soul retrievals and drum journeys and like that's what shamanism that's what shamanism the word um inspires for a lot of people like if you say shamanism they start thinking all of that and that's where i'm like no 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 like that can be happening Mm -hmm. but like let's be real about what shamanism is right like Mm -hmm. the why is that more known than the practices of indigenous people that have been intact for thousands of years right and Mm -hmm. like and why you know i think it's very important to look at how uh people who have gone and learned from indigenous people and then presented themselves as shaman and then gone back to the west and started schools of traditions like who's profiting right who's being seen as the who's being seen as the authority who's getting the profit so for all those reasons i'm excited about this book because there needs to be material out there that's like um historically accurate culturally respectful um not appropriative and grabby right like Mm -hmm. not like oh, we're going to take the the beautiful regalia, but abandon the part that we don't like, like the legacy of genocide and imperialism, right? Um, Right. So, yeah, I'm super excited about this book and really honored to be a part of who's, you know, the team that's bringing it into manifestation. So, yeah, I'm translating and I'm writing the introduction.
0: That's awesome.
1: That is very cool. I have a question in regards to the translating. Mm -hmm. because I am in a relationship with somebody who speaks multiple languages, and that's one of the things that he ends up having issues is he'll think of something in one language, and then when I ask him what that means, or he says something in one language, and then when I ask him what it means in English, he's like, it doesn't translate well. It doesn't have the same meaning when you do a direct translation. So how does that work for you? Because I'm sure there are words in other languages that you work with that don't necessarily translate well into English?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the whole idea of translation is like, if you only speak one language, I invite you to consider that translation, all translation is partial translation. Put Mm -hmm. the word partial in front of it whenever you hear translation. If you speak multiple languages, then you already know this. So, you know, I've lived in multiple languages in my life and each language is like its own world with its own Mm -hmm. symbolism, its own mythology, its own um, underlying beliefs and assumptions, its own energy, its own vibe. So really, I mean, one of the key questions is, do you stick literally to the text or do you make it beautiful? and elegant Mm -hmm. in the language in which you're translating to. And I'm choosing that latter one for this book because it's important to me that people be able to read it and it's enjoyable. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there are some academic articles um, on uh, Saha culture and Saha shamanism but they're written in an academic language that is not going right. to be accessible or interesting to um, many English readers, English-speaking mm-hmm. readers. And so this book is, if I smooth out some of the constructions that are, per, wouldn't be beautiful and elegant in English, right? Mm-hmm. I think this is a book that could be really, really widely readable. So you're going
1: with the spirit of the words versus the actual literal translation.
2: Yes, yes. And then all of the words that describe the sacred, I am leaving in Saha and just explaining what they mean. So that, because there are some words that you're not going to be able to to translate.
1: Um, Mm -hmm. And that happens with any language.
2: That happens with any language. Yeah, yeah. So it's definitely an art. For Sure.
1: No, oh, yeah. absolutely. It's, it's an imprecise sciences, kind of what it's been explained to me. Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, when people are doing, you know, cause I've done some translation work before, if you're doing like a manual or something like that, then mm-hmm. you really got to narrow in on the, z- the nitty gritty. But if it's uh, more, if it's, if it's a different sort of text, then it's like, well, what are the values here? You know, you mm-hmm. want it to be readable. Or at least I want
1: it to be readable. Yeah. Doesn't do any good if uh, nobody's going to read it, right?
0: No, it doesn't. No. Right. I mean, that's the whole point is finding the understanding. Um, Translation is hard, especially when languages have different families. Mm -hmm. So they don't translate easily. Something from German to English is a lot easier than, say, something from uh, Chinese to English. Sure, Mm
2: -hmm. sure. Yeah, and Sakha is in the Turkic language group. Yes. So, yeah, and then Russian is in the Slavic language group. Yes. So, um, and then English is Germanic. So, yeah, so that's the dance.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things I've been working on in this uh, stay-at-home period. You're translating Um, as well? No, not translating. No, just uh, spending time learning languages.
2: Oh, good for you. I love I mean, learning languages. Which ones are you working on, if I
0: may ask? Um, I've been really barreling down on my German, which is something mm-hmm. that I've been working on most of my life, but I haven't been diligent with it until now. Uh, I was uh, focusing again back on Japanese. Mm-hmm. And uh, my Norwegian, I had let slide for a little bit, but uh started to pick it up again. There's a lot of similarities in my brain anyway between Norwegian and German. Oh, of course. And... Mm. Um, because they're not really one-to-one, but there's just a very similar feel to them. Sure. And uh, and I made this crazy attempt at uh, Vietnamese Okay. because of where I live, mm-hmm. and uh, that did not go so well. Mm. <laughs> it was <laughs> much harder to uh, work on than I expected because I couldn't distinguish the sound differences. Sure. Either the characters were very different, but I couldn't hear the difference in the sound to be able to recognize what character it should correlate with and mm-hmm. it was super frustrating and i said i will come back to this at another time uh i was also working on korean which also because of where i live um and that one was actually significantly easier so i've been kind of going back and forth on that one and i did work on russia for a little while last year and i just sort of touched on it again uh, like two days ago just to kind of see how much i remembered mm-hmm. and um I did remember a lot more than I expected, so that was kind of nice.
2: That's cool. Wow! And you speak all these languages fluently?
0: I wouldn't say fluently, but I definitely well, can read a lot of them. Uh, I can trans. I can easily. I could see what it is, and I could understand what's being said. I can hear it and understand it, but I can't speak it back as readily. Mm-hmm. So that's <laughs> one of the things that I'm really trying to focus on is to be able to actually speak them. Mm. Got it. Got it cool yeah yeah
2: yeah i love i love studying languages it's a great pleasure in my life
0: yeah so tell us more about you your life what else is going on with you what else is going on with me hmm well what would you like to know um how okay so how do how do your parents feel about you reading tarot for a living and doing the work that you do
2: oh gosh you know it's pretty i think it's pretty weird for them you know um i think it's pretty weird for them you know i think like a lot of um people of immigrant and refugee backgrounds there's a lot invested in the american dream yep. which you know looks like um advanced degrees prestigious schools buying real estate, uh, getting married, having children, nice car, retirement money, um, your financial security and stability. And I went on a very different route. Um, And so I think that is uh, worrisome because they want what's good for me. Um, With time, uh, they're warming to what I do. You know, it's it's tricky because especially on my mom's side, there have been a lot of women on, uh, not just women, there have been men and women um, in my lineage who have been oppressed and repressed for doing these sorts of practices. And right. so I think the fear of, you know, there's a, it can feel very scary and unsafe, um, you know, so with each kind of step that i take towards more of the esoteric there's another level of fear i think for them when i um went to school i did a three-year program in ayurvedic medicine they were like what is this you know and then um but then after time they were like oh no ayurveda is ancient it's smart it's natural it's diet it's herbs it's lifestyle it's mindfulness practices this is really good and then like you know when it's like oh you're hanging out with shamans in the middle of nowhere you know my mom is you know she knows these places but she knows these places from within the Soviet Union um times and so um you know uh so she is kind of slowly updating her concept of where I am to fit um the times that are there now. So I, I, you know, but ultimately as I become more successful, I think they're warming up to it. I mean, they're my parents and they love me. They just want me to be well. And so Mm. as time passes and I continue to be happy and satisfied and excited and like not, you know, losing my mind or, running out of money or anything like that they are I think able to to access more and more of the sense that maybe it's okay um that maybe it's okay yeah Mm -hmm. yeah
0: well I mean it's really common I totally understand I, I if my mom were still alive I think she would be freaking out a little bit about um she didn't know that I practiced witchcraft Mm. She died long before I came out of the room closet. Okay. And uh, I I don't know how she would have taken it because she was very, she's Filipino from the Philippines okay. and uh, very superstitious. Yeah. Mm. Really superstitious. Unlike weird things that I still to this day don't understand. Sure. Um, and I don't know that she would have been very accepting of it. Um, my dad has taken years to kind of come around, but, you know, dad's from Detroit, so. Yeah, I also think Catholic.
2: <laughs> practicing is no issue at all. Practicing is great. Talking about it publicly is the part that has gotten many of our people incarcerated and repressed. Sure. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, um, I think, legitimate reason to be um, at least um, to to have those buttons be pushed. Um, mm-hmm. But on the other hand you know it's just like i'm so clear that this is what i'm supposed to be doing with my life that this is it's not like i'm deciding this myself right i'm being called into this and i'm saying yes to the call and i'm being supported by so many so many beings in different worlds in the work that i'm doing in the the path that i'm on that it just feels increasingly easy. Like it's a, it's a yes, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm being called into this and all I have to do is show up for it and do my own work so that I can be a person who's worthy of this.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. That's awesome. Yeah,
1: that's very cool. So now, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, you had mentioned earlier that when you work with clients, you don't do anything with them that you haven't already done with yourself. So could you give us some of the revelations you've had doing some self-work?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of my life is spirit guided. I would say Mm -hmm. that as I become increasingly confident in the support that I have. And, you know, my spirit relationships are as real as my living human relationships. And so Mm -hmm. um, I'm increasingly surrendered to letting them sort of run my life. In fact, when I started going back to Siberia, it was entirely because of spirit contact. Um, Mm -hmm. My ancestors told me, like they called me and they were like, you are ours in this life, you need to be on your land you need to reindigenize. you need to learn your language you need you know they like laid out this whole plan for me including books books that i'm gonna write so that i is my next next project i'm hoping i'm planning um and you know i started going to siberia based on this advice i mean just this year there was another um trip that I was invited to uh, at the same time as PantheaCon, actually, I would have missed PantheaCon. And I was super like, okay, I could go on this other thing. But I got the information that I was not supposed to go on that trip. I was supposed to be at PantheaCon for whatever reason. And it's like, at this point, it's like, okay, I don't question it. I'm like, great. Mm -hmm. I trust you. I know you. I trust you. You've shown up for me so many times before. I'm going. I'm going with it, right? I mean, I feel like, uh, you know, on the more uh, on the more personal level, like right now, um, I'm working on like unconditional love, like mm. you know, for myself and others. Like, how could I? Because I have this very, um, again, like immigrant refugee shaped pattern around achievement even though my values and what I'm trying to achieve, I'm not trying to be like a rich financier or a CEO. I can still be like very like every day, get up early, do a workout, clean everything, do all your work, get everything done on time, like give money away, be volunteering, you know? So I can have like an intensity of like, you can do more always. And so I'm like, Hmm, I'm really learning about like, I mean, this has been going on for years, the value of chilling, the value of opening up, the value of just calming down, the value of unstructured time, and then also how to, um, you know, get away from this, like, productivity of, like, I must be using every second to, pro- to produce or do,
3: mm-hmm.
2: doing versus being. So that's that's an ongoing thing that I'm working on. And ritual really helps that because like being a ritualist requires this sort of unstructured space, right? Mm -hmm. Like you go into ritual and you don't know how long that you're going to be in that space, right? That like super transpersonal, blown out, high as a kite, like psychedelic, like space. It's like Mm -hmm. the person who comes back might be different from the person who goes in. And so there's a, there's a surrender. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, like I, my own self work is is ongoing. Believe you me, yeah.
1: Well, thank you for sharing about that.
2: You are welcome.
1: Uh, I found that you uh, co-founded a group back in twenty fifteen. Yes.
2: Uh,
0: Tell us about this group.
2: Oh yeah. yes, yeah. There's um there's a group called Embodiment Arts Collective that a group of us co-founded in San Francisco on a land in twenty fifteen and it's a brick and mortar healing arts collective. I mean it still stands
3: um, mm-hmm.
2: in San Francisco and it's a uh, healing arts and event space that's rooted in queer and outsider and marginalized communities and practices. So it's a place where um uh people whose healing arts or wellness practices might not um overlap with the more normative alternative health practices. It's a place for people like that to have practice space um, and event space. Um, mm. And that's, that's a project that um, was really, really big in my life because, you know, starting something like that that has an actual brick and mortar location is, um, is a lot of work. And then, um, and then we've moved. Um, the space that we were in was actually converted into a, uh, condominiums um, oh. which if you know much about life in San Francisco you will not be surprised that's life in California no, uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah San Francisco is it, everything's converting to condominiums or something to offset the number of people that live there
2: yeah the development and the gentrification is really um is really something so we moved to another space um year before last and now we're in our our new space and Mm -hmm. you know things are very um um the there's a lot of upheaval because of the coronavirus of course right of course you know it's like okay well no one is working out of that space at all so the way the finances of such a space work is that mm-hmm. people have events and see clients there. And that's the money that pays the rent. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, I, I, feel like one of the gifts of being, a, of my lifestyle and of being in other realms is that I don't take, I don't always have to take this realm as seriously. Right. So like, um, I don't know what's going to happen with embodiment arts collective in the time of, of coronavirus, um, mm-hmm. but it's just going to have to be okay. right, right. Yeah. And
1: I think that's kind of what a lot of us are having to deal with right now is this isn't the optimum solution, but it's going to have to be something that we're okay with, at mm-hmm. least for the time being.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, it's hard to say, like, when will we be able to have events again? Will mm-hmm. people even want to see um, practitioners in person, right? I've mm-hmm. noticed uh, the trend has been more towards online. Even three years ago, all of my local clients would want to see me in person, like whatever mm-hmm. time and money it costs them to get to my office it was worth it for them to actually have that face-to-face connection. And in the more recent years, it's been like, no, like a lot of even my local San Francisco clients are like, let's, let's meet on video. And I'm like, yeah, that's totally fine. Um, So I'm wondering like, you know, how much of an office am I even going to need? How much of an office is anyone going to need? Uh, I like the having an office, you know, there's Mm -hmm. something about having a space that is, um, that feels good. It feels competent. It feels like you're really in your practice, right? If you have a space that you can see people in, that's not your own home. Um, mm-hmm. you're in my home office right now, but you know, I'm not going to have strangers come into my home office. I right. mean, like that's my kitchen behind me. You know
3: what I mean? Right. Um,
2: so, um, um, yeah, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Increasingly my clients are global also. So mm-hmm. like my local the people I work with locally are a smaller and smaller portion of my client base and then you know will I even be able to see those people in person and touch their bodies I don't know so when yeah
1: right it's a matter of when and we just have to make do with what we have right now
2: yeah absolutely absolutely
1: I mean,
0: everything about how we interact with the world around us is going to be changed for a while. Absolutely. How we've been doing business as usual in the community is also going to shift because even once we get to a point where we can start interacting in person again, it'll be a while. And so Mm -hmm. we're going to make new processes in the meantime to adapt for this current time. And some of those might be better for us than the way we've been doing them previously.
3: Mm -hmm. It's true
0: it's true i mean i i think that um hand washing
2: and asking consent before touching each other that, that
3: that's mm-hmm. going to be
2: great right <laughs> um, but at the same time yeah i mean so much of you know so i have like my my writing work and you know creating content and i'm thinking about you know i'm not thinking about it i i want to start a youtube channel which i'm super excited about um So I have that sort of like I'm making work and then I have client work, but then I also love doing events. Like I love it, you know, and I feel like I have one most months where it's like something like Pantheon or a workshop in like a witchy tarot magical space or like, um, you know, some sort of gathering or event, or I'm asked to facilitate ritual. And I feel like those are the spaces that I'm like, how's that, how's that going to be? I mean, I've been doing stuff online, like, you know, a lot of other people, but that's very different. The doing ritual work online or teaching online, like I'm sure this interview would be different if we were all sitting together. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And our sense of being connected and actually in intimacy would be different. Right. Um, right. And so a lot of what I feel like pushes um, my work forward is this, uh, experimental, these experimental fields of being able to teach and facilitate um, in group settings where everyone is putting their energy in and who knows what's going to come out. So yeah, not sure what's going on with that. And I'm not sure when I'll next be able to get to Siberia, um, which is, um, you know, uh, it's like I the thing about living in two places is that I miss the place that I'm not in. So, Mm -hmm. um, and I'm in the United States more. So, um, you know, I haven't been this year yet to Siberia. And so I'm like, Oh, I want to go so badly. The land, the spirits, the sacred places, my friends, like the people I love there. It's like super feel called to be there.
0: And it's like, I mean, I'm not going today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when when was the last time you were out there?
2: Um, I left. I was. I left there last summer, so I was there for the summer of 2019.
3: Yeah. Nice. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I was there for the summer of 2019, and I was planning to go in May of 2020 for this summer. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, May of 2020 begins next week, um, and
1: yeah, wow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I'm just a track of time,
2: and I have, I have, you know, obviously not purchased plane tickets. I mean, the Russian Federation border is closed. You can't get mm-hmm. in. You can't get out. So, um, a number of things would have to be in place for me to be able to go. Um, and a border being open is just one of them. Right. Right.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, f- tickets are probably super cheap right now.
2: I've been watching them. You know, a lot of uh, airlines are not flying as much, so they've actually started to go up. Um, mm. I actually just checked tickets today, and they were really expensive. Um, oh, wow. But, um, yeah, that's a whole other factor, right? It's like, I just got to sit with the unknown of it because when the border, I need the U S border open and the Russian border open. And I need countries that I can fly through because it's three flights to get to where I'm going. So I need Mm -hmm. to be able to fly through places. And then there's also like visa passport stuff. And then, um, and then there's the finances of like, where are, you know, where are my finances and how much is, yeah, is this going to make flying really inexpensive, or is it going to make flying really expensive? We don't know that yet.
1: Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that we're all kind of sitting back and like, what's this going to do for the global economy? We already see things slowing down dr- drastically,
0: fuel prices.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of unknown. So I'm just like sitting with it you know like Mm -hmm. whenever there's those moments of heartbreak and yearning i'm like okay go into this like what's what's in here i mean in some ways the yearning is is the love right Mm -hmm. when i'm really present with how much i want to be there on the land and how much and the pain and the loss that comes up when i imagine not being able to be there that's the intensity of the love that i'm feeling also so Mm -hmm. there's a real sacredness to it even though um it's painful and then also just recontextualizing and being like you know what there are a lot of people who are experiencing homelessness right now there are a lot of people who are experiencing this um from the vantage point of much less economically privileged you know, economies under global capitalism. There are people who are living in abusive situations there are people Mm -hmm. who don't have money for, for, for groceries. So like, let me not be in my apartment in San Francisco with like my, you know, nice little family and (laughs) be complaining. Right.
1: Right.
3: Yeah.
0: I was just looking at the, Numbers for the area in Russia is still listed as a whole,
2: yeah,
0: area rather than the uh, yeah. UK. Russian
2: Federation is the whole area. Yeah, they have what about seventy thousand cases um,
0: um, of just, coronavirus. What is it? It was. Yeah, it was a little higher than it had been.
2: Yeah, yeah, they're um, still on the upswing. They got. They're just
0: shy of seventy-five thousand. Yeah, with yeah. six
2: hundred
0: and eighty-one deaths.
2: Yeah, their death percentage is very low, um, and, it, and but they also began later than some of the rest of us. Sure. So, yeah, yeah, we'll see. Um, yeah, there are um, some cases in Sahara Republic also, I believe around 20-something cases. It's, yeah,
0: I can't see it in the... Uh... Johns Hopkins map.
2: Yeah, it's not on the Johns Hopkins map. You have to go into Russian language, Russian media maps to see by region. But like in most places, less densely
0: populated locations um, are are typically not as hard hit.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, we're actually on par with San Francisco in Orange County. Mm, got it. Um, we actually we have a, a just a little bit. We're at like a thousand something uh, infected, but we're at 38, I think, deaths as opposed to San Francisco's 22.
2: Yeah, I mean, the whole Bay Area has 7,000 something cases. So mm-hmm. I've been looking at Bay Area wide more than the city of San Francisco specific because the city of San Francisco is such a tiny, tiny little dot. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's it's a very strange time, and there are um, disruptions on all different levels, right? Like, mm-hmm. the disruption of illness or of a very close one being ill is very different from the disruption of not being able to go to the beach because the beach is closed. But at the um, same
0: time... Well, it's closed up there, but it's not closed down here. Ah, Yeah, um, they
1: just opened... Well, they officially reopened them, and... Uh, yeah.
0: They didn't apparently technically close the beaches here in Orange County. Mm-hmm. They closed thought, the parking lots. That's oh. right. Less so if you convenient. can walk, it's okay. Yeah, so you can walk into them. And then the Board of Supervisors just a couple days ago voted to open the beaches because they want to bring the, um, the tourists in to help the economy with the local businesses. And I'm like, why would you do that? Because yeah. We've been keeping our numbers really, really low. We've been very, very good, and you want to open up the beaches where they're not open, because LA and San Diego, I think, are still closed, and so then they want to allow all those people to come over here, and they have higher infection rates than we do.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. it's,
0: it's extremely. Yeah, it's uh, it's very unknown how we're going to come out of shelter in place. So, yeah. I think- I think we should start thinking instead of trying to reclaim how things always were, we should start thinking outside the box. Yeah. How can we still survive without, you know, making things worse? And, uh, and I get that, you know, we need to start bringing in the, you know, the finances for folks that need to start earning money. How can we do that best Mm -hmm. without putting more people at risk? Yeah. Yeah. I have very yeah. strong opinions about it, but I'm not going to put it here. Yeah. Yeah. Big, big questions. Yeah. Big questions. Yeah. So how did you find the pagan community? I mean, you're in the Bay Area. It has a pretty prominent pagan community. For sure. How did you get involved? Like, how did you find your way around there and, and stumble into it?
2: Yeah. I would say I, you know, I'm more, um, I've been pagan adjacent and pagan friendly for a long time. It's like there's obvious overlap between my practices and practices found in the pagan community. I definitely had a period of time when I was in middle school and high school when I would go to you know used bookstores and pick up like really great books and find out a lot about the, you know, uh, books and practices that were um, rooted in pagan communities and various magical communities, and so I was aware of overlaps between the sort of practices that I have in my in my family and in my history, and practices that other people are doing. And then as I grew up, it's like I've had friends who are involved in reclaiming reclaiming witchcraft, you know, and um, and a lot of um, people in the radical fairy community. I've been blessed to, you know, go to go to fairy gatherings and and be in those spaces. And so, um, you know, it just sort of seemed like a natural overlap. Again, with this whole boundary walking thing, it's not like there's an obvious crew of people that I'm in with, you know, there aren't a lot of people anywhere outside of bless you. Saha Republic. I mean, there's a diasporic community in Moscow and in, in Petersburg. But besides that, it's not like there's a lot of Saha people um, everywhere, you know, anywhere. And it's also like, I'm like super multi-ethnic and I'm American too. So it's not like I'm Saha in the same ways that, you know, my friends who have lived there for their whole lives have a different experience of being Saha, obviously. So, you know, as this sort of outsider person I'm always looking for like who can I vibe with who can I connect with who can I talk to where we can um and be in ritual space with and heart space with that we can like really connect with each other so I you know go to pagan stuff sometimes and um connect with people and it's good to have other people to like be friends and colleagues with other people who do you know similar source of work or that I can talk to about or be in ritual space with Um, and when I went to PantheaCon three PantheaCons ago, um, you know, I, it was just like, I was like, oh, this enormous pagan event is right here in the Bay Area. Why am I not going? So, you know, um, I went with, um, my family and, uh, and I was like, oh, this is, there is, there's room for me and stuff like this. You know, I should, I should apply to present, you know, and, and so I did. And so I, you know, presented last year and this year, and and it was good. I feel like there's um, there's spaciousness
0: uh, for a lot of different um, types of practice, um, so I enjoy that. So there's going to be a a new event replacing Pantheon.
2: Yes, Between the Veils. Have you? No, um,
1: isn't that the group? Not the event, or is that the event and not the group? Because I, I remember seeing something about that on Facebook.
0: There was a group created for the event.
1: Right, but the event is being put on by Between the Veils, and then the event's being called something else, I believe.
0: Perhaps.
1: I'll have to double-check that.
0: Yeah, perhaps. Originally, the the event was called Between the Veils, but they might have decided to change the name because it's too similar to another Event. Mm.
1: um
0: but i don't know because i'm not i'm not i haven't noticed that
1: between the world's conference is what they're calling it now i think
0: isn't there already a?
1: Or maybe that's, that's, a, that's, that's a that's a different thing i think that's what might have been why they changed the uh name because when i went to go search for between the bales.
0: anyway so the event that's going to be replacing the pantheon location, time slot. Are you going to be submitting for a presentation for that? I would love to. I mean, it's,
2: it seems it's still quite early in terms of knowing, you know, especially with the coronavirus, like what, what events are happening and whatnot, but mm-hmm. I mean, I'd love to present and I would certainly love to attend and would love to participate and be involved in, in, yeah in any way that would be helpful. I mean, I I love going to stuff. I love learning and teaching. So yeah. Yeah.
1: So I was going through some of the sessions that you provide for people. Mm -hmm. And I noticed you work with ancestral healing and we have talked with other people who have done ancestral healing. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And uh, can you give us a little bit of information as to, how you work with your ancestral healing uh i know that uh some of our past people have worked with uh ships and things like that and have worked with like the blood river of blood and things like that so i was curious if you have any uh connections similar to that or if your work that you do is uh your own in that sense
2: Um, I, the, the phrases that you just used are not, um, phrases that I'm familiar with, but what I find is that, you know, on the spirit level, on the energetic level, since material, things can change form very easily. So what might, um, appear to somebody or be known as a river of blood, um, might, to someone else to appear in a different sort of a flow pattern, you know? Um, And so I, I honor the differences that take place. I would say that um, what I find is that the capacity to connect with one's own blood ancestors is a human birthright. It's not something that only professionals or chosen ones or, you know, whomevers Mm -hmm. can do um it's something that's inherent to being human and is going to be accessible for most people so um, it's also uh something that's been lost for many people because of forced religious conversion and colonialism and empire and the the wounds of that and so what i try to do is re-empower people in creating that connection for themselves um, rather than so I don't feel it would be ethical for me to be like, if you want to talk to your ancestors, you have to pay me for a session every mm-hmm. time you want to do that for the rest of your life. Because the ancestors might not have been contacted in like a thousand years or something, it can take a while to build that relationship and to do any repair or um, healing work that needs to be done. But Mm -hmm. really, I see I want the client to do that work. And I'm there offering guidance, offering protection, taking notes so that those evanescent, you know, um, materials that come through in trans space don't just like get lost forever. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm there doing that sort of work, like guidance, supportive cheerleading work, and really allowing um, the um, the client to have their own experience, and often it will be mediated by whatever cultural heritage background they have, and so, like, if they feel that they're traveling on a river of blood, like, right on, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, if they, uh, if that's their experience, then, like, absolutely, you know, if if they have a spiritual practice that they already work with, if they have <laughs> fairy beings or guides or, you know, lineage ancestors of another type who are helping them connect with the blood ancestors, then like that all works. So Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, one of the aspects of Saha spirituality and many indigenous spiritualities is that it's super non-dogmatic. There's room for a lot of different experiences. Mm -hmm. So um, there's room for individuals to approach things differently. And so that is present in my work um so yeah I'm always curious to know like what other people are doing and the ways that other people are approaching this work um but really I don't have the hubris to be like I'm guiding it the well elevated ancestors are guiding it you know Mm -hmm. so like um and I'm just supporting so um it can look a lot of different ways and some people right. tend to see visually some people hear some people get somatic experiences some people just have a knowing and um, I you know I validate and support all of all of that so yeah I don't want anyone to feel like oh if I don't see my ancestors as clearly as I see my you know neighbor mm-hmm. then I'm somehow doing it wrong it's like no you're not you're not doing it no.
1: wrong yeah uh, and that's having done this these interviews for gosh almost a year now we're coming up on a year in may
0: oh, so when we first
1: when we first started doing our first interview it was with tommy starchild down in san diego at the end that's of may. right yeah so uh, how does it feel it's it's been eye-opening honestly uh having experienced so many different uh, walks of the pagan path and learning so much from different people. And so I try to make connections with elements. And what I've learned from different people is while everybody's experience may be slightly different or ways of achieving things is slightly different. The end result is very similar. It's very connected
2: yeah yeah I think that there are many many paths, yeah there are many paths, and I think for people who live between different cultural spiritual social worlds that um, is especially obvious and I think for many pagan people' my, my sense is that many um correct me if I'm wrong, but many pagan people in the United States didn't grow up pagan. So there's already kind of a, you know, there's whatever worldview or frame they grew up in. And then Mm -hmm. there's this other thing that they inhabit. So already there's at least two different ways of being. And if there's two, there could be a thousand, right. Right. And so, you know, and so I also have this experience of many different different ways of, of being, Um, you know, you know, Saha spiritualities are inextricably tied to Saha language, Saha land, Saha people, Saha culture, Saha lifeway. We're talking about a place where there's winter, eight, nine months a year. We're talking about a place where there's darkness and then also 24 hour a day sunlight, right? We're talking about, uh, uh, you know, it's no accident that Arctic cultures produce Arctic places produce Arctic cultures. Tropical places produce tropical cultures. We as humans are the children of the plant and animal and mineral and sort of heavenly body elemental, right, people who are around us and are forming us. And so um, many of us these days are mashups, right, like multiracial, multicultural people like myself. There's a lot of us. And um and so our spiritualities are going to have those elements um as well and you know part of what um i try to navigate is doing that ethically because so often and i see this um i do see this in paganism where sometimes people just borrow bits and pieces from different cultures and it's like you can't just take the fluffy stuff right Mm -hmm. um but at the same time it's like you know, I can't go around pretending that I was born and raised in Saqqara Republic. Like, that's just not the truth of my experience. You know what I mean? Like I wasn't born and raised in, in, you know, like, it's like my mother's experience was different from mine. My father's experience was different from mine, but I also do carry connections to these, to these places, especially the ones that I've been to and spent time in, you know, uh, you know, places like European Russia and Ukraine and Sahara Republic. like, you know, um, there's, there's a sense of rootedness and connection there. Um, but then it also has to come through some sort of a, um, form that honors the multiplicities of truth. Hmm.
3: Yeah.
0: That was awesome. Um, got so lost in that that was uh (laughs) um do do you have more questions on the list did we read i'm i'm I'm, i've
1: i've i've gone through all my pre and then some that i came up with as i was listening so i've gotten through all my list
2: yeah i'm just letting y'all guide the conversation because it's y'all's podcast so is
0: there any let's see so you've talked about so did you talk about all the books that you have on your thing or did you only tell us because you told us two okay well so there's the
2: moon girl that's out and there's a book on siberian shamanism that i'm translating by bravina i mean i am so excited to write my own books like that feels really really like alive within me um but i haven't been i haven't started yet so like there's Mm. not a thing to promote you know what i mean like the book that i'm translating i'm like i'm gonna finish it you know like it's gonna i feel like i could talk about it because i'm in process of it and i've been at it for months so like i feel like i'm enough of the way into it that i'm like yes this thing is happening i mean i also have a business relationship and a contract like it's happening Um,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: in terms of writing books, I mean, I have, like, just a lot of different ideas. I mean, I feel like where my work is largely located is there's the tarot and divination piece, there's the ancestors piece, um, there's the Saha piece, and then there's, like, a reindigenization, uh, decolonization, um, piece there. Um, and so I'm, you know, curious about different intersections of that. I've kind of been thinking about a YouTube channel as a place to explore, right? Of like, right. well, I can do different pieces that are five minutes or an hour long, right. and it's not the same commitment as researching and writing a whole book um, and kind of seeing where the, where the energy is. But I feel like I have, you know, curriculum that I've been teaching on all of those topics that that could certainly expand into multiple books.
0: And it's just a question of like, what are,
2: what do people want? What are people
0: asking for? You know about, don't worry about what people want. What do you want to share? Mm -hmm. Because people are going to be drawn to it. And I find that trying to figure out what everybody else wants is sort of like similar to nailing jello to a tree. Yeah, not so easy. So do what you feel called to do and what you feel called to share. And trust me, people will come to it.
2: Oh, well, thank you for that vote of confidence.
0: Yeah, you know, I've consulted with
2: people in the publishing field. And they've said, out of all of the things that you feel passionate about, start with the one that'll sell the best. Because then, you know, your next books will have more juice behind them sure and so you know it's yeah i'm not there yet you know what i mean i'm not there yet there um you know i had some ideas about writing projects to start this summer in Sahar, in Sahar, um, and since plans are up in the air about going there yeah. um i you know What does that look like? It's up in the air. And I'm still working in this book. So it's sort of like I trust that the next thing will come forward when it's time. Um,
0: And I trust that there's exciting material there, you know. Um, You have really good instincts. So Mm -hmm. whatever is going to, whatever is going to draw you in whatever direction, I'm sure it'll be the direction you need to go. Thank you so
2: much. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, there are things that got canceled, right? I was thinking about like doing a, a teaching tour of the Pacific Northwest. And it's like, well, I'm not doing that now,
0: you know? But you could still do teaching online. You could offer yeah. an online courses. Yeah,
2: yeah, there are, there was, yeah, there have been online events that, there was one really great one that I participated in a couple of weeks back called Embracing Your Earth Journey. And there are a couple of more ones that I've, Um, that I've applied for, you know, I'm I'm in the process of organizing or collaborating on. And yeah, I did, you know, there's been great stuff that I've been doing online and that's been really good as well. And so I'm kind of just sitting in the cauldron of the shakeup, right? Where I'm like, right now between the translation and my clients and the online events, I'm like, this is what's happening right now. What's next? I don't know. It feels pretty clear that there are more, books um, and that at some point my creative practice will merge more explicitly into my spiritual practice and healing arts and teaching practice Um, because right now it's like a separate thread that runs alongside right where it's like dance and theater arts and visual arts and music are all things that I practice and engage in my life but they're not things that I'm that I'm labeling as like my work, right? And but I feel that there's going to be ways that they get interwoven in the future. But like, it's like I trust my future self. You know,
3: mm-hmm.
2: F- future Laura will will make it happen. Like all I need to do today is just try to show up in a way that is loving and peaceful and present and open, and then like everything else will get will get revealed.
0: So. Mm. So if people are interested in learning more, uh, contacting you, where can they find you?
2: Oh, thank you so much for asking that. So I have a website with a spot to sign up for my newsletter. And that's my name, lauraperlin.com, L-A-U-R-A-P-E-R-L-I-N.com. And then on Instagram, I'm Laura underscore Perlin. On Facebook, I'm Laura dot So, you know, my, my regular name is my spiritual name and you can find me there across
3: those, those media.
0: I will be sure to link those on your uh, post when we put it up. Thank so you so you much. Just get there really quickly and connect with you directly.
2: Great. Thank you. Yeah. I've, I'm happy to hear from anyone. Like if you listen to this, to this podcast and you're like, Oh, I want to connect. I want to check in, like reach out. I'd be glad to say hi to you. And
0: yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank Mr. you Bodon, for on prime. And Tyler. so grateful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for agreeing. Um, I'm bummed that we couldn't do it in person like we originally planned, but I'm glad that we could at least do it by video um
2: yeah I and mean, perhaps we'll do like a panel or something in person again another time mm-hmm. that would actually be a really great idea
3: mm-hmm.
2: yeah like I if you're in the turn. bay area you can get people together who have you know if you get a group of indigenous people a group of poc a group of people who work with the dead i know i'm a little chipper for people who work with the dead <laughs>
3: uh, <but laughs>
2: i, I love a, that idea um yeah because then it wouldn't be like why are you having this person on a second time when you haven't even had everybody on yet
1: oh and there's there's a there's a list
0: i'm sure i'm sure Um, yeah thank you so very much
2: oh you're so welcome i'm glad that that you that we stayed in contact and i'm happy to be on this and it was lovely to meet you tyler i don't think i (laughs) I met you at PantheaCon. Um,
1: no, I was I'm, I was floating all over the place. So
2: I, there were there seemed to be many people there. So I'm sure I didn't meet a lot of people.
0: Yeah. There were like 1,500 people or more.
2: I felt it was quite a few people. It I know was... that might be a small one for y'all, but it was my first time going for all four days, and mm-hmm. between presenting twice and going to presentations and you know, attending stuff and talking to people—it was, yeah, it's a big yeah. event, especially yeah.
0: if you're a presenter. It's yeah. A- yeah, yeah, yeah—it's a big event. Yeah.
2: Well,
1: thank you, thank for- you Laura.
0: Oh, uh, thank you for having me and for our show. Yeah,
1: I'm really,
0: I'm really grateful for that. Thanks. All right, well, you take care of yourself and stay safe up there, and um, we will be in contact with you again soon.
2: All right, great. Thank right. you.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, please consider donating on our website at ravensatthecrossroads.com. You can also catch future episodes directly from the website or find us on iTunes Music, Google Play Music, or Spotify. Follow us on social media, Ravens at the Crossroads on Facebook and Instagram, and at Ravens Ravenscrossroad on Twitter.